John 3.16. It's quoted so often, folks, that it's become familiar to the point that the whole meaning behind it loses its impact. So let's look at these words real slow. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Where it says God so loved the world, the word love there, in the original Greek, it speaks of an all-consuming love in which the person who is doing the loving is completely given over to the object of that love. The Amplified Bible translates it, For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world. The original Greek word that was translated world is actually cosmos. It's referring to the whole creation, the domain of mankind, God's whole creation. It says he loved it so much that he even gave up his only begotten son. His only begotten son. Ever have someone try to tell you that God had more than one son? Not if John 3.16 is true. But the biggest impact of this verse are those three little words that come before his only begotten son. He gave up his only begotten son. You know, as a kid growing up, I used to think that God was actually splitting hairs and kind of cheating here. You know, God didn't really give him up. He resurrected him three days later. But eventually, as I was first getting into the Bible, Chuck Messler introduced to me the passages of Scripture that showed when the second member of the Trinity became the human known as Jesus Christ, it was a process that was irreversible. Even after Jesus was resurrected, he was still human. Now, he might have been in a brand new immortal human body that, I mean, you know, but it was still a human body. And to this day, Jesus is still human. He's still a man. The person that Jesus was before he became human is a person that he will never be again. And that made me read John 3.16 in a whole new light. For God was so given over and completely consumed with love for his creation that he even gave up his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What's really amazing to me, folks, is that it was a mutual agreement. The Father gave him up. The Son volunteered. You know, folks, throughout the years, through evangelism and so forth, we've really unintentionally made accepting Christ almost a cliché. Do you believe you're a sinner? Yes. Do you repent of those sins? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? Yes. Do you accept his death on the cross as payment for your sins? Yes. Bingo, you've been saved. You're now a Christian. But whenever your English Bible uses the word believe, in the original Greek, it literally means to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon. Those are present tense active words that are continually active. So on the one hand, you don't just believe once and move on. This isn't a one-stop shop for fire insurance where you can purchase your policy and forget all about it. But on the other hand, whenever the English Bible gives us the words everlasting life or eternal life, in the Greek it implies that it begins at the moment of faith and continues forever. So eternal life isn't something you get when you die. You get it now. And this leads to one of the biggest debates among Bible scholars that's been going on ever since Christ first left the planet Earth. 
Some groups define the plan of salvation almost as though as it's a license to sin. Now, they would never call it that, but after you've heard their definition of it, that's exactly what it is, folks. They believe that since Jesus died on the cross to pay for all sin, that those who accept that payment are no longer held accountable to God, and they can do whatever they want at any time. They can lie, cheat, steal, murder. It doesn't matter. Jesus paid for it. They can do it and go to heaven. Well, they're missing the point. This group seems to have a problem distinguishing the difference between God's judgment and God's discipline. God's discipline has got nothing to do with the afterlife. God's discipline takes place right here, right now, on the planet Earth. It's something that God does to those whom he loves for their correction, for their benefit. It's not fun, but it's always done out of love. God's judgment has got nothing to do with discipline. God's judgment is about paying off a debt. It's about justice. When Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins, he paid the penalty of sin. That involves God's judgment, God's wrath, all of that Jesus took care of. Something else, when you're reborn in the Holy Spirit, you're given a new heart. And that new heart isn't going to take the plan of salvation and use it as a license to sin. Those who do only prove that they haven't been given a new heart, they haven't been reborn in the Holy Spirit, and therefore they couldn't possibly be saved. I don't care how loud they said they believe Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sins, and I don't care how many people heard them say it. It's not a license to sin, and anyone who treats it as one isn't really saved. The opposite extreme is that salvation itself is something that can be received and then lost if the receiver doesn't hold on to it. They believe Jesus' work on the cross only covers the sins of a person's past. They believe all sins must be repented of first, and you can't repent of sins you haven't committed yet. So, once you're saved, all your past sins have been washed away, but from that moment onward, you have to be on your guard and keep yourself clean. And if you mess up, you need to confess that sin and repent of it, and do it in a hurry, because if you die on a car wreck before you've confessed and repented of that sin, you're going to hell. Well, guess what? That's not true either. How many of your sins were still in the future while Jesus was hanging on the cross? All of them, folks. And God's outside time, remember? He knows the end from the beginning. Time is a physical property that he created, and he's not bound to it. He knows your whole life, every sin you've ever committed and ever will commit. And he also knows exactly how and when you will physically die. So your salvation isn't left up to chance. I've actually heard people say, whenever I die, I hope it's while I'm saved. Well, what's that all about? You're either saved or you're not. It isn't something that comes and goes. It can't be switched on and off. If you could lose your salvation, then Jesus wouldn't have used words like eternal or everlasting life. And don't forget that those words were used in the present tense. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get it now. If you could lose eternal life, then it's not really eternal, is it? Jesus also used the words reborn and born again. Once you've been born again, I don't know how you can become unborn. You're reborn in the Holy Spirit and you receive present tense eternal life. But on the other hand, what activates that isn't just a cliche statement about belief in Jesus and it's not a license to sin. Folks, these two extremes are not new. They were around in Paul's day. When he wrote to the Christians in Rome, he had to deal with those very same two extremes. 
Half the people saw salvation by faith alone as an excuse to get away with murder. The other half knew that that couldn't be true, so they went too far in the other direction. They were worried about losing their salvation and made demands about obedience as a prerequisite to salvation. And Paul had to contend with both of these extremes in the same letter because he knew both groups would be reading it at the same time. It was a challenge for him, and because of that, Paul's letter to the Romans is a lot of fun to read, because Paul keeps going back and forth trying to put out both fires at the same time, in the same letter. He starts off completely trashing the idea that being a good little Christian has anything to do with our redemption. He starts off by saying that everybody has fallen short. But since everybody falls short, then everyone is eligible for redemption provided in Jesus. And since Jesus alone is responsible for our justification, then there's no room for any pride or boasting about how good we are. We're justified by faith, and faith alone. But then Paul takes a turn to address the opposite side of the spectrum. The Ten Commandments, the principle of what's right and wrong, we still follow that. We choose to take sides with that, but for different reasons now. Before, we were children being told not to cross the street without looking both ways. If we disobeyed, we were punished. But now we're adults in Christ. Punishment is no longer an issue. Jesus took the punishment for us. But does that mean we abandon the rule of looking both ways before we cross the street? Certainly not. Who wants to get hit by a car? But eventually he describes almost on a medical level what sin really is. He says the wages of sin is death. Some people think that means you can lose your salvation. But all that means is that people who sin die. That's why everybody dies a physical death, even Christians. Paul brought up the body as the instrument of sin. It's in our DNA. We've talked about this before. And when we are reborn, it's a spiritual rebirth, not a physical one. We still carry the human body, and the natural function of the human body is to be an instrument of sin. It entered into our DNA stream through Adam, and it's passed on from generation to generation. It's a disease it's a virus with no cure. There is no cure for the sin virus. The only way you can kill the disease, folks, is to kill the body that's inflicted with it. That's why all human beings die a physical death, even Christians. But the physical body, fortunately, folks, the physical body is just hardware. And the real you inside, the real you, is software. And the performance of all software depends on the condition of the hardware it's in, right? You take a program on your PC, run it in a superior PC, it's going to perform better. The software hasn't changed, but depending on how old your computer is or what model it is or how much RAM's installed, all of that hardware decides how the software is going to act. It's the same way with us. Our physical body, our brain, all of that is hardware. The real you is software. And when all of us are born... Our software is a slave to the hardware that it's in. The hardware that we are originally installed in comes with the sin virus. The sin virus completely controls our hardware and influences the behavior of our software. But when a person is reborn in the Holy Spirit, that Holy Spirit is like new software that's downloaded onto your hard drive. Once installed, it quarantines the sin virus to your body only so that the software, which is the real you, can be uploaded to new hardware when you die. And that particular function of the new software isn't accessible to you once you've had it downloaded onto your hard drive. It's locked under software administrator only. It's God's program. And he won't allow anyone but himself to access that part of the program. 
But there are additional features of this new software, and God does allow you access to those. It's what the New Testament calls the gifts of the Spirit. But I don't want to get into those. I just want to focus on one particular feature. The sin virus is now quarantined to the body only. Okay. Now you have the choice to go online and download add-ons or updates. You do that through prayer and a steady diet of the Bible. The more add-ons and updates you perform for that new software, the stronger it is within your hardware and the better it works with your software. But don't ever think that the sin virus has been completely removed from your hardware. It's only quarantined. The primary function of the new software is to preserve your software for a future upload. When your hardware, your body, finally dies, the sin virus will be destroyed with it. And the software, which is the real you, will be uploaded onto newer hardware. Hardware that is brand new. Hardware that is virus-free. Hardware that is perfect. Hardware that is much more advanced than the hardware we're used to having. And that hardware exists in the kingdom of God.